Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. Uh, my name's Ollie, and it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you this morning. Um, wow, you guys are looking great this morning, by the way. It's been a while since I've stood in front of you. You're smiling, happy. That's what we like to see. And uh, I'm, I'm excited because it is Palm Sunday. And uh, this is not the Sunday where you have to give them a high five with your palms. This is the Sunday we remember when Jesus entered into Jerusalem and they laid down, waved palm branches, laid down their coats before him as he rode in on a donkey. It was a spectacular occasion of celebration. And that's what we're doing here today. We are celebrating this most pivotal moment in all of history. Um, I, I apologize if you are Anglican this morning. I do tend to shout a bit. It's just, um, I get excited about Jesus. You know, when we, when we discover that this is the very center point of history, you can zone right in with God and see one moment. I love this. Have you ever done this? Uh, maybe some scientists here, you've zoned in on a bit of God's creation and you've seen a, just one plant and you're like, man, God is amazing, isn't he? And that, then you zone in a little bit more and you look perhaps at, at the flower, and you notice that there's those little markings that kind of tell, they're like runway tracks for the bee to land. You're like, man, God is amazing. And then you zone in a bit more and you get out your microscope and you understand that this flower is actually not just petally stuff. It's made up of cells. And you're like, God is amazing. Is anyone with me on that? Some of you are. Some of you are like, this is a science lesson. I did not come here for science. Tough, you're here. You zone in a bit more and you get, you get the cells and inside each of them, you discover it's made up of these atoms and then you're like, this is mind-blowing because you zone in on them and inside them is the nucleus. And then you get out your electron fancy microscope in some big lab and you can go deeper still and you find there's protons and there's neutrons inside, electrons circulating around. Anyone doing GCSEs at the moment? You're welcome. Just here to help. And, um, and, and then we can zone in even more and we come right to the very center and we're still discovering the level of detail that you can zone in on. And we're finding that the closer we get and the more intense we get, it seems to be that there's this thing called chaos theory. We're into quantum physics now, moving into university level. We'll open the Bible in a minute. This kind of quantum physics that basically chaos of random movement is creating this order of atoms and cells. God is amazing. God is amazing. We read in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth without form and void. It's basically chaos was in the place. And God said, chaos, come into order. <laughs> chaos, come into order. And I think for some of you, this is God's word as I'm speaking. The chaos in your life, God says, it's time for it to come into order. It's time for it to line up with my end time destiny. Not only can you zoom right in, you can also pull right out with God's creation, can't you? And I, I love this. You can zo zoom out from that one flower and you realize it's in a forest and you look at the, the huge forest. Maybe you need to get your drone camera now and you start flying around. You're like, man, God is amazing. Some people, Ed Teresa, have just come back from New Zealand, Ed Teresa, um, where they flew on a helicopter, Teresa. She didn't, I don't think you flew the helicopter, you flew in it. Yeah, you flew in the helicopter, it's a good place to be, better than the outside of the helicopter, and, um, and, and saw the beauty of God's creation from a kind of zoned out, zoomed out feature. And you can zoom out even further, and you begin to see the whole planet Earth, and then you get the galaxy, and it's our God who put these things in place. 
Now, some of you here, you may have more faith than me. You may believe that all that happened by chance, by accident, by someone just waiting around and around. Go and do the mathematical probability of that. You will find that you have far more faith than those of us who believe that there's an intelligent design. I have seen my children... Um, walked into their bedrooms and discovered, I won't say which one, uh, they've discovered mess in their rooms. And I, and I know that that has not happened just by chance. <laughs> I believe that there was an intelligent or semi-intelligent being behind it designing the mess. And then sometimes, to my shock, I walk in and the mess has turned into order and I know for certain that it must just be by chance that those clothes picked Okay, you get where I'm going on this. There is an intelligent design behind the creation of the world. And you might say, well, why are you going with this, Ollie? I'm basically wanting to preach the whole Bible to you today. This is, this is what's in me. That, that the God who set things in motion at the beginning of creation has reached a pinnacle point, which is the cross of Jesus Christ. The whole world revolves around that moment. And I'm not just talking about culturally, that we have a transition of time where we have been. B.C. and A.D., uh, B.C. meaning before Christ, A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. Um, B.C. also can mean before children. Any parents will understand what we mean. And uh, B.C. can also mean before COVID. Uh, there's a definite dividing line there. There's these, these pivotal moments that shift and say something's changed about the world. And we read that right in the beginning in Genesis, it points forward to the cross, that the life of Abraham points forward to the cross. Guess where we're going? Moses points forward to the cross. The prophets point to the cross. David, the king, points forward to the cross. The prophets are all pointing to the cross. And then the cross appears. Jesus comes, dies on the cross, and guess what happens after that? The apostles start pointing back to the work of the cross. They say, yes, Jesus is coming back soon, but you know he died on the cross for you. And it becomes this pivotal moment of history. And some of you who've encountered Jesus at the cross, you'll know the transformation he does on the inside of you. It was William Wilberforce who, as a believer, said, do you know what? Slavery is not from God. We need to abolish it. And he gave his life to that. He also gave his life to form the RSPCA, Random fact. You're welcome. Why? Because something of Jesus in him was stirred up to say we've got to change things, to restore things back to how God intended them to be. He'd encountered the power of the cross in his life, and now he wanted to see the power of the cross affect the world around him. We have one Pentecostal in the room. Thank you. I take the amen. God is working. God is working. If you look all through history, why do we have a demo democratic rule of law in this nation? Guess what? It's the cross. It's the cross. Well, why is it in this nation we have an emphasis on education and healthcare? Why do we have orphanages? Where have all these come from? Guess what? It's believers who birth these things in this nation and most nations of the world. <laughs> Why? Because we understand that there's a mandate. Having, having found God's restoration power at work in us, we understand that there's a mandate for us to bring God's restoration power to the world. And so I'm coming today, and I'm going to start preaching in a minute. I haven't begun my notes yet. This is the warm-up. Um, Dom asked me, can you preach until Easter Sunday? I'm like, no problem, no problem whatsoever. 
And so I want to dig into Luke, um, the book of Luke today. We're going to really weave our way through and see that Jesus started this journey to go towards Jerusalem where he knew he would die on this cross, this pivotal moment of history. And Luke is someone who, um, he's, he's known as a physician, so we'll call him Dr. Luke out of respect to him. I don't know if he's listening in on my sermon now. I'm sure he's got better things to do up in heaven, like worship the Lord, you know. Um, but, yeah. but if he is here, we'll give him respect, Dr. Luke. Dr. Luke, he was, he was one of these people who, who is meticulous about the way that he does things. And we know this because of how he describes himself. And you'll know some people um, who are, uh, what's the word? Um, particular. That's the polite way to say it. And particular. I, in fact, I think all of us, we have a little area in our lives where we're particular. Uh, when I was single and free, I used to have all of my cans <laughs> lined up in the cupboard. <laughs> well, well, what is wrong with that? I, my, my son, children are going there. My wife's going, what do you mean single and free? I mean, of course, the truth is I'm now married and free because freedom doesn't come from your marital status. It comes from your relationship with Jesus. You know, thank you. Thank you. Nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and genuinely, this is some of what we're going to be talking about is that mindset shift that we need to take of what God's done in us. Um, because inside of us, God has put potential for greatness. And so when Jesus is beginning this journey, he's beginning to unlock the potential that is available to each one of us, that through the cross we can become all that God has called us to be. And so Luke is one of these people, when I was single and free, in other words, I knew Jesus, not that I wasn't married at that point, but I wasn't, um, all in my cupboard, uh, I had all my tins beautifully ordered. And, and this is a sensible thing. Anyone here, uh, anyone here? Yeah, a few of you are with me here. You put, you put the kind of tin tomatoes all together and the beans and you, you move towards, you move along, you come to the kind of fruit stuff. You've got processed foods. And the, yeah, a few of you are getting this. A few of you are looking in disgust. Well, let me tell you, when you go shopping and you buy three extra cans that you don't need and come back and go, oh, I didn't realize that was in my cupboard. It's because you don't have a process. So, so some of us... Some of us are, are meticulous on these things. Now, some of you, whilst you're busy judging me about the cupboard, you're the ones who are meticulous about locking up every door at night. I had a, a big thing, again, where I just trusted the Lord would be there. I knew I had an angel protecting my front of my house when we lived in London. Sometimes we'd come home and go, oh, nobody locked the door this time. Never mind, it's all still here um, because God is there. But we're not fussy on that. But others of you, I know you are. You check the lock once, twice, three times, just to make triple sure, in case someone has come and snuck in and removed it. And, and don't even get me started on washing up. The number of pro some of you are wash up like this, others of you are, some of you here have a dishwasher, right? And you wash things up before you put them in the dishwasher. Where are you? And what is wrong with you? No, okay, no, it's fine. It's fine. My, my therapy session is over. Luke is one of these meticulous people. He likes to have things in order. We read this about him. In Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 3, he reads, says this, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. Okay, hold up. To set in order. Do you see what he's saying? It's like, a lot of others have tried to do this, but as much as they've tried to do it and kind of order the things that have happened for the coming of Jesus, just as those who from the beginning, verse 2, where eyewitnesses and ministers of the word deliver them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, or some versions will say, having meticulously researched everything, or some versions say, having carefully investigated 
all things. Luke is saying, having done all this stuff and looked into it carefully, it seemed right that I would write to you an orderly account. You're getting the idea. He's like, I am doing this properly in order. I've got to write this down carefully in the right way. And that is what I'm doing for you, most excellent Theophilus. Theophilus, probably a a kind of big wig who needed a bit of respect along the way, most excellent, thrown in there before his name. Theophilus could just be a nickname, kind of God lover. (laughs) That's what it means. Hey, you, the lover of God, I wanted to just, it's awesome you love him. I wanted to set things in order so you would get the right perspective. Now, remember John, at the end of his gospel, he tells us if everything that Jesus did was written down in the books, there would not be books enough to contain it. In other words, every day Jesus had an agenda. So Luke has carefully researched everything. Uh, Some of you, when you were writing your um, essays for university, perhaps you carefully researched everything. And others of you carefully researched everything. You know know the difference. Uh, Some of you just looked up a couple of references in the back and went, oh yeah, that'll do. I'll throw them in and pretend that I looked at them. And others of you got every book out of the library on the topic and carefully researched. Well, Luke is a careful researcher. He's the one who took out the books for the whole term, which is why no one else could get them. He has done his investigation. He's spoken with the eyewitnesses. He's discovered everything he can find, and he says, I'm now going to set things in order. Bear that in mind when you read through the whole book of Luke, as we're about to do now. I don't know why there's that nervous laughter, because verse 4 says, no, we're not going to do that. Um, The first couple of chapters of the book of Luke, he focuses and does a deep dive into the birth of Jesus. Interesting, isn't it? And then when you come to chapter 3, he says, I need to tell you where Jesus came from. Jesus is supposed to be the son of Joseph, as in Joseph and Mary. And Joseph was the son of, and he goes on and on and on, and he traces the family tree back all the way through King David, really important character, through Abraham, a really important character. In fact, Dr. Luke has been so fastidious, fancy word, in his discovery, he takes it all the way back to the son of Adam. The first man. This is the kind of care that he's giving as he's producing this account. So the first couple of chapters are on the birth. The next few chapters are about Jesus getting ready for ministry. We have a a couple of chapters on his ministry up in Galilee, which is kind of where Jesus was from. Most of the years of his life he spent up there. I'm going up there because it's in north of, I feel like a geography lesson now. It's north of Israel, which is up here, obviously on the map, whereas Jerusalem is south Israel down here, and there's Samaria in between. Um, So there we go. That's the end of geography lesson. Um, And Luke carries on. And then then we come to Luke chapter 9. And Luke chapter 9 and verse uh, 51. This is what Luke writes. He says, Now it came to pass when the Savior had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Just pause. Luke is saying, there came a moment where it was time for Jesus to head to Jerusalem to be killed. That the whole reason why Jesus had been born, which Luke spent those chapters on, the whole reason why Jesus had come to earth as a descendant of David, who had to be the Messiah's line, a descendant of Adam, a member of the human race, a descendant of Abraham, the whole reason is because he's coming to this point where he's going to die on the cross. And it's now time for him to set out for that journey. And some of you will have done this when you moved home. You pack up all your belongings in the car and you set off because you know where you're going. 
Um, you, you kind of get ready. The time has come. You spend weeks, perhaps months, preparing for it. Others of you with exams looming. Sorry, guys, I know you're on holiday, but tough. Um, they're coming up anyway. You, you, you know that you're getting ready, and there will come a day where you actually have to set out for the exam hall and begin what you've been preparing for all your life so far. No pressure. And so we're at this moment. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the beginning of this journey that he has that's going to continue through 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Chapter 19 is going to be when we come to Palm Sunday. So this weaving down from the north of Galilee all the way down through Samaria, around through Jericho, down into Jerusalem. Little geography lesson there again. Did you see it on the map? Yeah, if you'd missed it, my hand just did that, so you didn't miss much. It wasn't very exciting, to be honest with you. Um, this journey has taken 10 whole chapters. And, and, and I want you to understand that Luke hasn't just thrown random stories in for the sake of it. He's, every single story, every comment, every action that he chooses to record of what Jesus did is there for a reason to point to what is about to happen. And the last few chapters are uh, chapters kind of 20 to 24. It's to do with uh, his time in Jerusalem, his death, the crucifixion, the resurrection. This is where we're going. How many chapters is that? It's about half of all the chapters. Half. That's like, we're talking about 10 chapters out of 21. Mathematicians are going, that's not quite half. Non-mathematicians are going, I don't care. Stop saying fractions. Half of it is given to this journey that, that Jesus is going on. And not only that, I don't know if you've ever spotted this before. It says, after he set his face to go to Jerusalem, verse 52 of Luke chapter 9, and Jesus sent messengers before his face. What? Ha! This is the first time it looks like Jesus has an organized ministry. He's not just floating around from place to place. He's like, I need some messengers. You go ahead, prepare the way. Ooh, what are they saying? I, I mean, the hope of the Israelites is that Jesus is going to come and overthrow the Roman rule. I'm free. I'm free. Ha! Jesus, set me free. The king is coming. Come on. Take up your spears. Take up your, your swords. Take up your, I don't know, elephants. I, I, don't, I don't know if they had elephants, but anyway, take up something. Whatever you've got, come, attack. And Jesus is sending these messengers. It's like this is, this is reaching peak moment. This is getting to the hype moment. I don't know if you've ever celebrated a big occasion and you begin with casual ideas and gradually things are formed. Maybe it's your wedding day. Uh, maybe it's a big party. Maybe it's something else. And you kind of gradually plan it. But those few days leading up to the party, they're pretty crazy, aren't they? It's like, this is, this, is, this is the moment. You know it's coming near. There's kind of that nervous excitement on the inside. This, this is the impression that Luke is giving. It's that things are coming to a head. Things are building towards something. And so we fast forward to the very last chapter of this journey, Luke chapter 19. And, and in fact, just before Luke chapter 19, we get Luke chapter 18. And I'm just going to touch on this story um, because I want you to see how this, this is Luke putting in place every story that is required. That there's a meaning and a purpose. It's not just every story of the stuff, what happened on my journey. Here's some random snaps. Are you interested? It's no. He has carefully and orderly chosen what events to put in place. 
So Luke chapter 18, we, we read about the blind man who is sat by the side of the road. And what does he cry out? He cries out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And if, you, um, if you're wondering why he's saying son of David when actually he's son of Joseph, and this all sounds a bit weird, has the blind man gone a bit cuckoo? Has he lost his mind? No, actually what's going on here is this blind man knows what the Old Testament prophets have said. They've said that from King David, that great king, the one who killed Goliath, will come somebody who will be the redemption of Israel. He will be known as the Messiah, or the Greek word of that, the Christos, or the English version, version the Christ, as in Jesus Christ. They will know him because he will be a descendant of David. So when the blind man is shouting, son of David, he's not got confused over the family tree. Instead, he's saying, I know that you are the Messiah. I get it. Have mercy on me. I know who you are. I know what you've come to do. Have mercy on me. And suddenly you realize Luke put that story in there because he understands that that blind man saw more clearly than the rest of the nation of Israel. And so we come to Luke chapter 19, verse 1. It says this, Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. <laughs> uh, remember the map? Galilee, Samaria, round this way a bit. Jericho, then Jerusalem. He's getting close now. He's getting close. In fact, by the end of this chapter, we've got the triumphal entry with the waving of the palm branches and the woohoo, hallelujah moment. But now Jesus enters and passes through Jericho. <laughs> the, the blind man was healed just before they got to Jericho. Messengers have gone ahead of Jesus. A blind man has been healed just before the town. And then we read that Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. In this story, we're going to have four characters. The first character is Jesus. Uh, if you are a tactile person, if you like to move, if you need to fiddle with something, your visual aid today, at no expense to me, is your hand. This is Jesus. Jesus. He enters and passes through. <laughs> and just to kind of illustrate this, if the pulpit here is Jericho, this is what Jesus did. Shall I do it one more time just for, for, to really get this? Uh, you, you know, Jesus enters and he passes through. And of course, with the Bible, you can take the big picture. You can also zone in on every little detail. Every word is there measured by the Holy Spirit for a reason. In the same way you zone in on creation, you can zone in on every word. Why does it tell us? Why does it make such a big thing of that? Picture you were there. You were there. The blind man has just been healed just before Jesus got to your town. The messengers have come through saying, Jesus is coming. Jesus of Nazareth is heading to Jerusalem and he's coming through our town. What do you think was happening? This wasn't Jesus walking through by himself. This was a crowd of people. The elders of the town were the gathered round saying, Jesus, come to my house for tea. Jesus, come eat with me. We have the latest samosas available. And they would have been saying, come, come, come visit me. You would have had people pressing in. Oh, Jesus, just one touch. Just one. Would you bless my business? Would you bless my child? Would you bless my left foot? All this pressure all around him. 
And yet Jesus ignores them because he's on his way to Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? First character in the story is Jesus. Second character, here it is, verse 2. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Again, every word matters. Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector. Remember Jesus, the Messiah, the messengers are coming through. He's the one who's going to liberate them from the Romans, from oppression. Zacchaeus is kind of in the other camp. He's part of Israel. He's an Israelite by birth, yep. But he has chosen to collect taxes for the Romans. He sided himself with the oppressor instead of the oppressed. He sided himself with the very ones who Jesus has come to set them free from. Zacchaeus, he's a tax collector. You might be thinking, taxes, yay, good man, go Zacchaeus, woo woo. Yeah, raising money for the NHS and for schools and for all these things. But in those days, the the tax collectors had a mandate. Go collect this amount of taxes because there's that many people who live there and any extra you get, you can keep. So the tax collectors not only sided with the oppressor, but they began to rob and steal from those who were around them. As you can imagine, this did not help them win any popularity competitions. In fact, as a chief tax collector, he would be robbing from other tax collectors, which meant he would have been a fairly isolated man. Zacchaeus, left by himself. Chief tax collector. Oh, but he's rich. He's rich. He's known by everybody, so he's famous. He's got all the money you could ever want. He's rich. He wears designer clothing from Dulce and Gabbana. He goes shopping in Waitrose and M&S. Some of you do that as well, but I'm not saying you're a tax collector. You look lovely, I'm sure. Um, He had everything that the world had to offer, it seemed. It's funny, isn't it? The lie of the world to make us pursue things that are worthless. I mean, if he had a TikTok account, he'd have more followers than anyone else, and he'd be suffering hate abuse on it the whole time. Jesus, Zacchaeus, verse 3, he sought to see who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd. The crowd. For he was of short stature. (laughs) Yeah, he, he he was a short man, and this brings encouragement to all of us who are not yet six foot. Um, he, he was a short man, but he wasn't just a short man, he was a hated man. So there was no kind of, oh, you come in front of me and we'll look behind you. It was, no, you keep out of this, Zacchaeus. This moment is not for you. Jesus is of Israel. You have sided with the Romans. Keep back. Zacchaeus, short stature, the crowd who hate him, the crowd who recognize that Zacchaeus is not the person that they want to have around them. Oh, they want Jesus in their house for sure. But Zacchaeus, not so much. Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, and now the fourth, and perhaps the most important character in this story. So Zacchaeus ran ahead, verse 4, and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. The fourth character is the tree. For he was going to pass that way. Zacchaeus knew that his life was empty. This was his moment, and he chose to run through Jericho towards Jerusalem, where on the other side there were some sycamore trees. I think they still exist to this day. And Zacchaeus climbs up the tree. This is is Zacchaeus climbing up the tree in his designer gown 
as a wealthy man. I know, I know tree climbing is a great sport, but real men who want to climb things, they start climbing mountains after a while. Yes? Uh, and those of us who are more sensible keep our feet on the ground. You don't climb a tree when you're 33, unless you're Anthony. Why not exactly? But children love to climb trees. Anthony loved trees. Children love to climb trees. And yet this wealthy man, who's a chief tax collector, he's middle-aged, he's probably got a bit of a pot belly, and there he is halfway up a sycamore tree. This is not the normal done thing. But finally, he's got this realization and recognition that everything that he's been working for in his life is not going to satisfy the need that's inside of him. Instead, his life is empty. And so at this moment... Um, He's stuck up a tree. And I see that in this room, there are many others of you who are in exactly the same place as Zacchaeus. You feel isolated from the rest of the group. It's like everyone else in church has their life together and they seem so perfect, but I just feel I'm separated and I'm over here. I know the things that I've been working for don't work, but I just wonder if Jesus, if I could just get a glimpse of Jesus as he passed by, but I'm just kind of going through the motions of things, but I'm longing for something more. Stuck up the tree. Nobody really understands what I'm going through. They don't see things from my perspective, but I am stuck up this tree. I'd love to be mingling with the crowd on the in crowd of what's going on, but instead I find myself isolated, maybe in your workplace, stuck up the tree. Stuck up the tree. This is where Zacchaeus has gone. Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree that he climbs up. And then we come to this point. This is the turning point. Let's just go through this with me. Everyone use your hands. It's gone. Here we go. We've got Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree, and then we come to this turning point. Here it goes. Boom. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And so we're going to read that he comes down the tree. Remember the tree? Now he comes down it. Jesus looks up at Zacchaeus in the tree and says, do you know what? <laughs> you can come down. I'm going to come to your house for tea. <laughs> Where was his house? Probably in Jericho. But Jesus has already passed through Jericho and ignored the cries from everybody who was there and come out the other side until he got to the sycamore tree and saw the man who was isolated, rejected, and realized that he did not have in his own strength what was required. Unlike the crowd who just wanted to hang out with Jesus for social reasons, Zacchaeus wanted to hang out with Jesus because he was desperate. There was not a plan B. I know for many men in this room, we like to think that we're strong. And you may be the strongest man in this room compared to everyone else. But as long as you keep comparing yourself in your strength to the people around you, you will never understand how weak you are compared to Almighty God. And once we surrender ourselves to Almighty God and say, Lord, I may be strong compared to them, but compared to you, I'm nothing. Then when we're weak, he can be strong through us. That's real strength. That's real strength. Oh, the, the pride of us as men is we don't want to be stuck up a tree. We're not going that way. Oh, we'll strong arm our way into the crowd because we can do what we need to do the way we need to do it. But until we understand, we can't. We can't. We can't forgive sins. We can't even be nice to someone for one week, even a day. Some, some of you, the only people you can be nice to are the people you've never met. Lord, let me love everyone, those poor people over there. And the Lord says, what about the person who lives in the house with you? And you're like, yeah, Lord, let me love everyone except them. They're hard work. 
Not my house. My, my family are all amazing. Just I add that in as a qualifier so that I don't have to be crucified again at home. <laughs> are you getting this? Zacchaeus was cursed, wasn't he? He, he understood his actual state, that he was cursed. In fact, the Leviticus puts it this way, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. The reason Zacchaeus is in this tree is because he's cursed. His actions, his decisions, his motivations have landed him up where he is, and he sees at face value what is going on, which is he has no hope, but maybe a glimpse of Jesus is his only hope of seeing something of wholeness in his life. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. And Jesus looks up at him and he says, do you know what? You come down from there because I'm on my way to go up a tree. I'm going to be hanging on a cross in a moment. I'm going to become sin for you. I'm going to take curse from you. Zacchaeus, you come down because I'm paying the price. You don't have to pay it anymore. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, this is the most exciting news. Remember, Dr. Luke, is this story there by accident? Why is this the final story? Because it's the culmination of the whole journey. It's the purpose of this whole journey. That someone like Zacchaeus, who has become a curse and a byword, a swear word in Jericho, has now found Jesus. Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree, the turning point where Zacchaeus fully accepts what Jesus has done for him. This is salvation moment. This is salvation moment. He says, do you know what, Jesus, I, I, I haven't got what it takes, but you have. And you're giving me what it takes to be who you've called me to be. Whether you look close up or whether you zoom right out, this world is a mess. Whether you look at just your life or whether you look at the news and the state of play that we're in here in this nation. You see, we need God to break in. He's not some kind of emotional crutch. He is the Lord of all creation. The one who set things in place. And he invites us to journey with him. Zacchaeus. No, Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree, the turning point. He went up the tree. Now he's climbing down the tree. Watch what happens next. The crowd, who were they against? They were against Zacchaeus. They knew him as the tax collector. Now we read in verse 7, when they, the crowd, saw it, they all complained, saying, Ha, Jesus has gone to be a guest with a man who's a sinner. Do you see what happened there? At the turning point, now the crowd, instead of being against Zacchaeus, they've turned their anger onto Jesus. Ho! Ho! Some, some of you have been struggling with the daggers that people have been throwing in your direction simply for standing up for Jesus. And yet we read here in Zacchaeus that the daggers aren't yours to take anymore. He's taken them. He's taken them. Paul could write, it's not me who lives, but it's Christ living in me. The life that I live by the body, I live by faith in the Son. I had a demonic visitation when I was about 19 years old. Came into my bedroom every night, 3 o'clock in the morning, to come and say hello. And uh, the Lord would wake me and say, you need to pray. And uh, one time I didn't wake to pray because it's quite tiring waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning every morning. And I had the most demonic dream that I'd ever had. The demon basically told me, if you keep working for, the, for Jesus, I will kill you. 
That was the word. My response, it's no longer I who lives. It's Christ who lives in me. The life that I live by the body, I live by faith in the Son. You can't kill me. I'm already dead. And I see, for us, we need to grow in maturity in this to understand that if Jesus has done the swap for us, then it doesn't matter what they say or what they do because we're not looking to them for our affirmation anymore. The crowd are not our litmus test of whether we're accepted or not. Just one place we look, and that is to Jesus himself. There's almost a spontaneous round of applause there. I heard one. That's like there. That's it. That's a non-spontaneous round of applause, but we'll take it. Okay. No, I mean, I mean this, this is our bread and butter. We, we don't gather as church just to have a nice time socially. We gather because we understand that without Jesus, we are nothing. We are nothing. But with him, we can do all things. This is the call of God that is on us. This is the call, the mandate that is set on us. The very next event that Luke is going to record is this triumphant entry into Jerusalem where he's welcomed by all. But we've had Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree, the turning point, the tree that he now climbs down, the crowd who have turned their anger onto Jesus. And then we come back to Zacchaeus and see what he says. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore it fourfold. In other words, Zacchaeus says, Thank you, Lord. Everything that I had was meaningless. Everything you are is purposeful. All that I've messed up with, Lord, you restored this mess. I give it all away. I owe nothing except Jesus. I have nothing except Jesus. I I mean, if you've been a, a Christian for five minutes, you know exactly what this is. This is like, yes, Lord, everything that I have is yours. The problem is when you've been a Christian for 10 years... We settle at a level of comfort. You know, the, the little secret sin, the one you, you kind of just learned to accept as normal, but you've forgotten the turning point at the cross. You know, you know it's kind of, you live your life comfortable. Jesus is there to bring you comfort and to help you. And it's nice and it's comfortable because we have a comfortable life because we live in pool where everything is perfect. You feel it's not. And that comfort leads you into a place of apathy. Not the Zacchaeus. Whatever I have, Lord, you can take. Whatever is needed, it's for you. But instead, just, well, what, how much do I need to do and still be acceptable to the Lord? How much? I'm a nice person now because I found Jesus. No, he's asking for full-fledged sacrifice. If anyone would come after me, he says, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. It's easy words. What's the reality? That means anything you want, forget it. Anything he wants, get it. Like, what? Jesus doesn't want us to have anything. Oh, no, he'll provide all your needs. Don't worry about that. But he doesn't want you to be complacent and comfortable. He wants you to be passionate and zealous for the things of his kingdom. We need to shake ourselves out of this discomfort. Otherwise, we are in grave danger of becoming exactly like the rest of the crowd. We want to be at the big event where God is doing something. But in our secret lives, we don't want to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. 
We just sit comfortably, knowing we're not as bad as the people who live next door or the person sitting next to you in the seat. Don't look at them, don't look at them, don't look at them. <laughs> Jesus, Zacchaeus, the crowd, the tree, the turning point on the cross, the tree, the crowd, Zacchaeus, who's next in the story. It's going to be Jesus, isn't it? Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham. He, he's not in the oppressor group anymore. He's lined up with God. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's kind of a theme that's going through. That actually the safest place for you to be in the kingdom of God is stuck up a tree realizing you've not got it all together. The most dangerous place is when you begin to think you're competent. That was the problem with many of the Pharisees. And we, we could end there. Um, but I just feel I want to give one more little pointer. Because the next event that happens starts about 17 verses later on. Yeah, Matt, come up and join us. Thank you. It happens about 17 verses later on. It's the triumphant entry. But between these two events... Jesus tells a story. This is Dr. Luke, the one who is crazy about details and order and precision, chooses to put the story that Jesus told here. Verse 12, it says, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called 10 of his servants, delivered to them 10 minas, which is like a quarter of a year's salary. So we'll say 3,000, 4,000 pounds, 6,000 pounds, 8,000, I don't know what your salary is, 20,000 pounds. Um, amen, someone said. And said to them, do business till I come. In other words, he entrusted them a certain thing. The same for everyone in this version of the story. You've been entrusted with life on planet Earth. <laughs> what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? And if you know this story, you'll know some of the people, what they do is they invest this life that they have, this mina that they have. They invest it, and when the king comes back to return, and Jesus is coming back to return, he's saying in this story, the king's going away, which he did. He's coming back soon. Oh, yes, he is. And then he'll go, well, what did you do with what I gave you? You see how this story's slotted in here? Let, let me read the link verse between Zacchaeus and this story. Verse 11. Now as they heard these things. What things? That Jesus came and swapped places with Zacchaeus. That he said, salvation's come to this man's house. Because the son of man's come to save what is lost. As they heard this message penetrating through their judgment. And their criticism. And their mindset. And their apathy spiritually. As they Heard these things, Jesus spoke this parable because, why? He was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was about to appear right now. In other words, the Romans would be driven out. But he said, no, it's not quite yet. The key to it, the cross is coming. But then I will be gone for a bit. And when I come back, I'll want to know what have you done with the life that I've given you? I just sense by the Holy Spirit there are people in this room that the Holy Spirit is challenging you. That you have lived at 60% for Jesus. Or 20% for Jesus. 
Oh, you love him. You know he loves you. You know he died on the cross for you. But really, when the rubber hits the road, your first reaction is not to turn to him. But here's a litmus test. If the Lord asked you to give money and the offering today, would you wrestle with it? Or would you go, it's not my money? Yes, Lord, I'll do it. Oh, sorry, was that, was that illustration a bit too close to the bone? It's fine, the offering's gone round for today. You're safe. It's all right. It's not coming back again. The Lord told you to give up something that you love, whatever it may be. could be something that's wholesome and good. Would you do it? Or would you have to wrestle over it first? Because at the moment when we're still wrestling over it, then our mina, our life that God has given to us is not yet fully given to Him. And Jesus has this story sandwiched in between Zacchaeus, miraculous salvation, triumphant entry and death on the cross. Because he says, I'm giving my all for you. (laughs) Will you give your all for me? I'm going to invite everyone in this room just to close your eyes where you are. As I've been speaking, it may be that you recognize that you have never accepted what Jesus did for you on the cross. That you see and understand that you are in Zacchaeus' shoes. Not that you're a tax collector, maybe not even that you are short, but that you have sin in your life, that you have not lived as God intended you to. But Jesus says, my whole reason for coming to earth is for this swap for you. If you're here in this room and you've never chosen to accept what Jesus has done for you, or maybe you've wandered so far from him and he's saying, today it's time to come back. Today it's time for there to be salvation in your house. Then I invite you just now to lift your hand up high. If you're saying, Ollie, I need this swap in my life. I need Jesus. Don't compare yourself to those around you to decide whether you're a good person or not. Compare yourself to a holy God who has never had one wrong thought, never had one wrong action. If you know you have sin and you've not accepted Jesus, then just lift your hand right now. Yeah. Anyone else? Don't be shy. This is a great day. The Bible says there's party in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to. Thank you, Lord. We're going to just pray for these people. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, say this after me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Palm Sunday when you took the journey to Jerusalem to die on the cross and become a curse so that I could have your blessing and your life. I am sorry for the wrong things that I have done. And I choose to follow you, to give you my life, today, tomorrow, and for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you lifted your hand, uh, there's going to be some guys here. Oh, they're here already. Look at the efficiency. Um, Do come and chat with them. Pray with them. They'd love to give you a pack and uh, to just help you on this journey that you've begun with the Lord today. And for the rest of us, God is loving. 
the Lord is full of grace, but he's looking for a bride that is pure and spotless. It's not opposites to say that he is both loving and a just judge, that he demands holiness yet accepts us as we are. And if you're here and you know that you have just been maybe coasting with Jesus or you've been comfortable with Jesus rather than fully given over to him, then I want to invite you in a moment to stand to your feet. And you're not standing to show anything to me or to say, oh, that was a nice sermon today, Ollie. Thank you very much. No, you're standing in the same way that Zacchaeus chose to come down from the tree. You're standing to say, God, I'm leaving behind my comfortable. I want to step into all that you have for me. So if you know that's you, I invite you to stand now. I invite you to do business with God. You pray. You pray. Those of you standing, if if you're sat because you're on fire for the Lord and everything's wonderful, please pray for those who are around you, right where you are. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. We invite the band to come. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You know everything that goes on inside of us. Lord, we yield ourselves to you this morning. We give ourselves to you again. Lord, we ask that you would chop from us any compromise, any apathy, any double standards. Lord, that we will not compare ourselves with those around us, but we will keep our gaze fixed on you. Lord, we ask that what you've entrusted to us, that we will use it for your glory. This life that you've given us, that we'll not waste one more moment of it in idle things, but that we will be fruitful for your kingdom. And I sense the Holy Spirit like that Niagara Falls waterfall he's pouring out in this place. He's been longing for his body to rise up and to be flexible with him, to be obedient to him, no matter what the cost. So Lord, we say, take us, use us for your glory. Lord, I pray that you will set a seal in the hearts of all those standing, that from this day our walk with you will be different, that our devotional times with you, there'll be a new sense of your Holy Spirit. Lord, that if we are simply coasting at any moment in the day, there'll be a a sharpness to the conviction of your spirit and a swiftness to obey. And Lord, we ask that you would use us for your glory wherever you go until you come back. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.